Welcome to Big Questions, Little Time. Conversations on sustainable development. We can all agree that we need to find solutions to the societal challenges we're faced with, and we need to find them now. But how do we actually do that? Here at Copenhagen Business School, the Center for Business and Development Studies and the CBS Sustainability Center have joined forces to bring in international thought leaders from a wide variety of fields and disciplines. Following the same structure for each episode, we wish to critically explore if, how, and under which conditions any given approach can bring about change and sustainable development. Big Questions, Little Time refers not only to the urgency for us to find possible solutions, but also the limited time frame for each episode. Hello. And welcome to the exciting world of AI research and sustainable technology. In this podcast, we delve into the fascinating and rapidly evolving field of large language models, chatbots, and their impact on our planet and society. My name is Sarah Netta, and I'm the host of this podcast. For today's episode, I have the pleasure of welcoming Associate Professor Dirk Hovi from Bocconi University and Associate Professor Daniel Hart from Copenhagen Business School, to act as your AI Sherpas, guiding you through the mountains of research and cutting-edge developments in the world of artificial intelligence. We'll explore the latest breakthroughs in language models, chatbots, and AI-powered sustainability solutions that are shaping the future of our planet and society. From understanding how large language models like GPT work, what this means in an educational context, to discussing the ethical and environmental implications, This podcast is your one-stop shop for all things AI and sustainability. So buckle up, grab a coffee or a smoothie if you're feeling eco-friendly, and join us on this journey to explore the intersection of AI and sustainability. Well, this is what an introduction to today's episode would sound like if generated by ChatGPT. And I have to admit, asking it to write me a script for today's episode was equally fascinating and scary. So I'm so glad that I have you, Dirk and Daniel, to demystify what this natural language technology and chatbots, what this actually is. But before we get started, maybe you could say a few words about yourself so our listeners get a chance to know who our AI Sherpas actually are. So my name is Dirk Hovey. I'm a associate professor in the computing sciences department at Bocconi University in Milan. I work in natural language processing. Specifically, I'm interested in how the demographic differences between people, so how different people talk differently about different things, are reflected in the models we use, uh, what they can do, what they can't do, and how we can use these differences to learn more about language, society, and uh, a bit ourselves. I'm also interested in the ethics of uh, natural language processing and AI in general, and what that means for uh, the future of work, society, and also research. Thank you so much, Dirk. Daniel, how about you? Yeah, I'm uh, Dan Hart. Um, I'm a computer scientist. I've been here at CBS for about 20 years now, and um, I've always been... Uh, interested in uh, primarily in language, both from a computational point of view. So I've been working in AI and natural language processing. I'm also very interested in the theory of language, um, theoretical linguistics, and how those two fit together. 
So before we jump into the discussion of uh, what it can do and what its limitations and sustainability implications are, I need to ask you a question, and it's probably not not a very simple one, but uh, I'm going to ask it nonetheless. So what is AI, natural language processing, and and, and, and why is ChatGPT currently all the rage and basically everywhere we look? What What is it? <laughs> That was a lot of questions. I, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. I said one question and it was definitely not one question. So uh, let me let me give it a stab and then Dan, you can uh, correct since you have a, a bit, bit of a better overview uh, over the, the development. So I think AI is the, the top category, right? So artificial intelligence, What that means is open to interpretation, but generally it's, let's just say, making computers smart and behave in ways like humans. Then natural language processing is one of the subcategories of AI that specifically deals with language. There are other ones that deal with vision, with learning, machine learning, and with robotics. So that's everything related to motion. So all of the aspects of Cognitive science usually have a equivalent in the AI subfields. And NLP, specifically the part that works on language, intersects nowadays a lot with machine learning, with large statistical models that learn from data a particular behavior. And language models are sort of the currently most famous, most visible outcome of those. You should probably say that language models are not new. They have been around for decades uh, in AI and machine learning. Uh, they've been used almost from the start. But with the move to neural networks and with the explosion of data that's available over the last 10 years, five years, they have made a significant change. They, they work in a different way uh, under the hood, even though they still do the same thing. And I think that has had a huge impact. Dan, do you want to give like a slightly different interpretation or aspect? Well, no, I mean, I, I totally, so AI is, I mean, it is a very fluffy thing to define in a way, but I think the, I think you basically said, Dirk, it's, it's whatever we think we use intelligence to do. We want to see if we can get computers to do those things. And so One of your questions, Sarah, was like, why are we suddenly talking about this so much? And I do feel like, you know, the the progress that we've had in NLP in the past couple of years is completely unprecedented in the field of NLP. And there's never been progress anything like this. You know, a lot of times researchers claim incredible progress, then it turns out to be a misinterpretation or overopt. And in fact, AI has been characterized by overoptimism maybe more than any other field. The classic example is the, you know, the movie is Space Odyssey 2001, you know, where Arthur C. Clarke actually went to leading researchers. And he, he was obviously a very scientifically savvy guy in the 60s and asked the leading researchers, what should I, what would be realistic in 2001? And the answers he got were basically the HAL computer that he wrote about, which was super intelligent. And of course, by the time we got to 2001, we had nothing like that. Anyway, I do think it's completely unprecedented the progress we've had in just the past couple of years. And we can talk about exactly why that is. But just a few years ago, computers were nowhere near as good as people at using language in general. And now 
the comparison is a pretty interesting one, as everyone knows. That's why, and that's in a lot of cases of standard uses of language, whether it's answering, you know, informational questions or, or even uh, creative texts. You know, the output of these models is not always so easy to distinguish from human output. And that's a totally new thing. And it's something that many people, including me, were skeptical that it would ever happen. So I think actually the general public is underestimating the import of what's happening, even though there's an incredible amount of interest. I don't know if you agree, Dirk. Yeah, I agree. I think the term paradigm shift or breakthrough is bandied around a lot usually. And as an AI researcher, you oftentimes get a little aversion against these things. But in this case, I, I believe it's justified in several dimensions in the impact we're seeing on new research, new applications coming out, but also in the effect it has at a societal level and in the uptake it sees. Now, the interesting thing is that this happened essentially overnight. So as with many things, you know, AI progress is exponential, which after the pandemic, we're all very familiar with exponential growth, right? One day there's nothing, next day one case, next day two cases, and then suddenly, boom, it explodes, right? And with AI, it's very, very similar. Things move very slowly in one direction, but then suddenly the stars align and things make a huge leap forward. And I think we have just seen that. Now, the stars aligning is maybe a bit uh, vague, so it's, it's <laughs> not that vague in reality. There's basically three factors that go into it. One is the availability of unprecedented amounts of data. We now have the entire internet. Uh, I oftentimes give this example that the amount you read in a lifetime, the number of words, which is about 200 million, that's, about, that's less than half a gigabyte of data if you compress it. Every day, there's several dozen gigabytes of new data that, that get generated. And a lot of that is also text. So essentially, you know, several thousands people lifetimes worth of reading is generated in a single day and goes into the development of these language models specifically. This is the first factor that has made these models possible. The second one is that we now have hardware that is much, much more capable that can actually crunch this amount of data. So 10, 20, 30 years ago, even if we had had that amount of data, we wouldn't have been able to process it in the time and the amount that we have now. And then I think the third factor is that with all the highs and lows of AI development in the past, we're now in a state where AI is sustained by industry applications and by a acceptance and a ubiquitousness in society. So in the 60s and then in the 90s and, and in other decades when sort of AI popped up and people got excited about it, it was a bit of a boom and bust. But now AI has become sort of an everyday tool, right? If, if you have gotten up and used a smartphone or a computer, you have interacted with an AI model. That is oftentimes very unglamorous. Uh, at the end of the day, AI models are basically tools that do a lot of linear algebra under the hood, but that doesn't sound as sexy as AI. But they're used in your phones, they're used in your search engines, they're used in your word processors. So all of that is AI in a way. It's, it's not always a, a robot or something that we would recognize as an AI, but it is now everywhere and it is sustained by research 
in academia, but also in industry. And uh, there's a huge interest now in industry in pushing forward these lines of research and sustaining this to get also a competitive edge. So I think these three factors, data, better hardware, and a sustained presence in society upheld mainly by industry has made it possible that we now see these huge jumps. And as Dan said, this really does feel like a, a phase shift This is so fascinating to to listen to you. I mean, this is this is your line of work. I mean, you're you're experts in in this. And and Dirk, you already mentioned this. AI is in so many elements of our everyday life. But for me and for most average citizens, we're we're simply not aware of its presence. Yeah, and I think that this might actually also be one of the reasons why we're currently seeing these strong reactions and this uh, polarization in in terms of reactions in the general public to to these new developments and to this paradigm shift and this omnipresence of of these new advancements. And I mean, we don't have to talk about general public in, in abstract terms. The three of us are all working in a university context and we can't really get around discussing what natural language processing and chatbots means in a university context. So what does this actually mean in, in, in terms of the way we teach and the way we test and how we conceptualize education and and knowledge i mean you're you're touching upon this that we're seeing this exponential growth and this is just gonna to continue and basically here to stay so how should we deal with this and and what's currently going on yeah that's a it's a tough one yeah so i i mean there's different ways of approaching it right and and we see these different approaches so With AI, there's usually either hype or doom. And I think we see a lot of hype. I think in this case, some of that is justified. Some of the doom might also be justified. But I think we always have the choice to be very excited about these things or uh, fear their outcome. Personally, I am very excited about many of these things, even though you can become a little bit jaded or blasé if you work in AI long enough, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, because you see all of the hype come up again and again, but, but suddenly this holds up to scrutiny. And I think for education specifically, this means a huge shift. There's a before and there's an after, and we are in the after phase, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. Now we can play the ostrich and stick our head in the sand and pretend this hasn't happened, but I think we can also embrace it and As with every new technology, there are a lot of fantastic use cases for it. And there is a potential for abuse, which we shouldn't keep quiet about. But I think overall, it will change the way we teach and the way we learn. But I think it has, on balance, more to give us as educators and as students than it takes away. What, what is clear is that we cannot continue in the same way we have in the past. That is the one certainty. But in terms of what it will bring, I think it, it is actually a very exciting opportunity. And when I ask about in class, 100% of the students have heard about it and almost 100% have used it. So this is there to stay. And, you know, like a large student body is usually a very 
smart group of people to tease out any new technology. And I think it's on par with the introduction of the internet and, and look up on the internet search engines, things like Wikipedia or before that Microsoft and Carta uh, that had an impact on how uh, students use technology, but also how teachers can use technology and what they can expect of their students to know, right? So in, in a few years, we will probably fully expect our students to be fluent in chat GPT or in language models, just as we expect them now to know how to use a computer, know how to use word processing, know how to use the internet. You know, when, when I was a student in high school, they told us, oh, in the future, you won't always have a calculator in your pocket. Well, you know, that aged poorly, right? Now we all have a calculator in our pocket and the basic tenets of math still hold. We still want to and have to learn math but we can now learn it in a different way, right? We can assume a different basis as teachers on behalf of our students. And I think language models are doing the same thing. We will see savvy, more sa probably sometimes more savvy than us, users sitting on the other side of the table in the classroom. And we will see a lot of really, really exciting and interesting applications and use cases of this technology. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of, a lot of concern about how we should change the way we examine students and the what kind of other activities you know uh, we give them in classes and like Dirk was saying I mean there is a we are going to have to make changes the way I like to think about it is that what we need to do is challenge our students to go beyond what AI can do and it seems to me that that's a, a wonderful challenge to have and a, a great way to think about education. I guess especially, maybe especially in the humanities, you know, we're, Dirk and I are mainly computer people, but I, I've somewhat of a leg in, in linguistics and philosophy. And I, and I do feel like, especially in the humanities, that it's still perfectly reasonable to say that what you want your students to be able to do is something beyond what AI is capable of, at least today. And maybe that will always be the case, that there will be a human way of thinking and expressing yourself that goes beyond AI. I don't know if that's uh, true, or maybe we will merge with AI in a more interesting way. But uh, but I certainly think it's a nice, it's a, I think we can think of that as an unambiguously positive effect of AI is that as teachers and as students, we're forced to be better, be more interesting and not to be lazy. I mean, I know as a teacher, certain kinds of exam questions are lazy. You know, they're just to make sure the student read the book. But if I really want to make sure a student or, or challenge a student to creatively synthesize what they've read and what they've thought about and relate that to their own experiences, that's better for me and it's better for the students. And so I, I, I do think as we worry about, oh, what if they, how many of our questions could be answered with a passing grade by ChatGTP out of the box? I mean, unfortunately, probably about half of them, you know, but maybe that's all, I think that's only a positive change that we're being encouraged to make. So that's my positive spin on it. Yeah, I fully agree with them. I think there is always this asymmetry between how easy it is to administer a an exam type 
and how much it actually tests the knowledge of the student, right? So one of the easiest tests is the multiple choice test, right? Very easy to administer. It does not really test students' actual knowledge, right? It, it tests more how well they can pattern match and you know, sort of remember certain things, but that's not actually understanding. The best way to test understanding is to have a personal conversation for a half hour or an hour, after which you'll have a very good understanding how much the student has actually understood. But that is almost impossible to administer with any realistic class size, right? So we have these two extremes. And I think as Dan said, the chat GPT existence now forces us as teachers to reckon with this, right? How many of my questions were, you know, questions that are easy to administer, but don't actually test knowledge? Because if, if it can be answered by chat GPT, then. Mm. I think what, what is important for me to keep in mind in this discussion also, to what extent um, chat GPT can be used for cheating um, in exams. I think for those who have, um, had the tendency to make use of alternative means to, to get better results, whether it is to hire someone to write your exam or to ask a classmate um, who allows you to, to copy some of that. I mean, there's always been ways of how to accomplish this. So in that sense, I think there's nothing, nothing new. Mm. What I think is different here and what I find really intriguing is that to a certain extent, this somewhat democratizes access to to knowledge i think this is especially relevant for those who might not have the means or um or access or availability of um of a proper education access to university and if you are connected to the internet and if you're capable of formulating a question you will get an answer. I mean, <laughs> we can discuss the quality of that answer, but you you can ask and you will get, you can ask a question and you will get an answer. And I think that that's really intriguing. And or am I completely off track here? And that is <laughs> simply just my naive understanding of, of how this works. No, I think that's very true. I mean, I think there's a lot of democratizing aspects. You know, one one issue about the, you know, that English is such a dominant language, like in research, when you want to write a research paper, you pretty much have to write it in English. And that gives, you know, Americans like me an unfair advantage. And so one of the nice uses of, uh, especially as NLP gets more advanced, you can actually, as a non-native speaker, get your language corrected, you know, and ChatGPT is like, there are many tools that are really good at that now. And that's that is a matter of opening up sort of more fair access to the to the that kind of linguistic obstacle that was there. So I, I agree on most of the things. Uh, I, I'm going to go most of the way with you. I think there are some issues. So I think the democratization in terms of, for example, writing and increasing your chances of being accepted because your language is fluent enough to be accepted will increase greatly and it will make it easier for everybody to reach a certain level of fluency and increase general writing standards. I think where I'm not yet prepared to go along with is the the access to this technology will give you knowledge. I think 
a lot of this technology does change how we should think about the value of universities and the value of teaching. We see a lot of democratization with the internet, with Coursera courses, uh, with other courses where people can attend online lectures or recorded lectures of great quality from everywhere and they can learn things. So I think in the terms of access to that, it's great. I'm not sure access to a large language model necessarily will increase knowledge. So I have used uh, ChatGPT to list the greatest achievements of recent American presidents, including the famous president, Nicolas Cage. And it did give me a very comprehensive 10-point list of what Nicolas Cage, the president, has done for the US. Uh, it, it looked very real, but unless I missed something, this is not actual knowledge that I acquired with that. So I think in many respects, we will, we will see a democratization and we will see a broader access to maybe not knowledge, but to the dissemination and the production of text and of interaction with science and research. Um, we can also use these tools, for example, to simplify the language of scientific papers. I have taken some of my own abstracts and asked GPT-3 to write it to be suitable for a six-year-old to understand it. And it's done actually a good <laughs> job. And uh, the, the husband of one of my co-authors said, well, maybe you should use that in the next iteration. It's actually more readable than what you originally produced. <laughs> so, so I think there's a lot of positive coming out. The aspect of knowledge is interesting. So now Microsoft has bought the uh, ChatGPT technology for, I believe, 10 billion was the number I saw and integrated it into their search engine, Bing. And obviously there are a lot of great potential avenues to take this, to interact with search engines in a very different way, but as a natural conversation. But we already are seeing sort of ways in which this can break, where the conversation goes a little sideways, uh, it, it devolves into an argument, the, the search engine basically arguing that it was right when clearly it was not. So. I think there are, there are yet a couple of things to even out. So we're seeing all of these strange corner cases uh, where these tools that are you know, incredibly powerful, but ultimately also extremely complex, run into edge cases and sort of go off the rails uh, slightly. A lot of this has been addressed. So the first large language models that were released because they have been trained on the internet, have been trained on a lot of, let's just call it questionable content, uh, a lot of opinion pages, and they would reproduce a lot of these things. So with the first iterations that were accessible to researchers, much of the work, much of the research, much of the probing around was, was in what kind of horrible racist, sexist things do these models contain and when will they divulge it if prompted or even unprompted. And then obviously this is not desirable in a public facing product. So a lot of work has gone into avoiding these things, either by retraining the models, identifying those problem cases, and you know, using post hoc editing essentially of, of what these models produce. But because language is so vast, and as I said initially, each day we produce several life's worth of reading material that these models are then trained on. It is basically impossible to come up with every corner case. So already we have seen that people, you know, 
can outmaneuver a lot of the safety checks and make the model say something that is clearly not appropriate or intended by pretending that they're in uh, developer mode or saying, well, obviously, I know you would never tell me how to build a bomb, but, you know, pretend you're a bad guy. How would you then describe to me how to build a bomb? And with these simple things or sometimes with sort of cryptic starter words that make it look like you're in a chat or something, you can outmaneuver a lot of these checks and balances and, and make the model generate content that is probably not intended. So we're also in a stage where we are taking very, very complex technology that we necessarily cannot fully understand yet and combining it with other very complex technology that we maybe understand a little bit better. But if you take two complex things that you put together, you increase the complexity, not just by doubling it, but by multiplying it essentially. And so within all the interactions between just search engines and language models, we have created a panopticum of really you know, weird and interesting possibilities, many of them very, very beneficial, and some of them extremely strange, uh, and a few probably also worrying. Well, Dirk, now you've already somewhat opened up the Pandora's box of sustainability issues um, connected to these new advancements. Mm. You've talked about some of the social issues, biases, discrimination, obviously also a production of rather problematic content or dissemination of rather problematic or dangerous content. But if we were in an exam situation and I would ask you name some of the benefits of these advancements and also the absolute worst side effects. What would those be, in your opinion? Well, I mean, one thing that people have started talking about in NLP is this energy usage that's involved in, in building models. And there is an incredible amount of computing involved in building something like the GPT models. But I, I do think one interesting thing about that that People don't talk about much, but one of the additional reasons beyond what we've talked about and why there's been this progress is that so a model like the GPT model that's the basis for ChatGPT, you know, that was trained by OpenAI using an incredible kind of resources that not only do we not have with our laptop computers, but I mean, universities don't have that kind of resources. I mean, very few organizations could even contemplate doing that. But of course, they made those. They've been making the sequence of those models available to everybody, and that's actually a really nice thing to do from the point of view of energy consumption. Because then all of us can take these models, and in a very efficient way, with a very small amount of tuning or prompting, build very you know powerful models for particular applications. And and not only OpenAI, but over. I mean, it's something that's been happening over the past decade. This idea of pre-training and then releasing. You know, Facebook has done this. Google has done this many times. I mean, companies that, you know, get lots of criticism, but it's actually a pretty idealistic thing to do that that has been very characteristic part of the progress in the field. It's just these organizations that are doing something incredibly valuable for the technology that only they can do, but they just make it available to everybody. So that a CBS student who has a good idea about a chatbot application for customer service, they can tune and build an incredibly powerful application with the resources they have because of what these companies are doing. And it is actually very, 
you know, you could think of it as very efficient in terms of resource utilization in a way. I think maybe in terms of sustainability, if we if we zoom out a little bit, sort of sustainability of knowledge, I think uh, these models, because they have consumed everything that was written on the internet by the time they were trained, which needs, you know, periodical updates, they are an incredible storage of human interaction, at least as far as it has happened in written form and on the internet, right? A lot of human interaction, maybe most of human language is not written, it's just spoken like we do now. But a lot of sort of obscure and and maybe worthwhile knowledge has made it into these models. So in some ways, these are repositories of human knowledge, which is storing them in in obscure form, but making it accessible to a wide audience if we know how to ask the right questions, right? To some extent, that might also go towards the survival and and the sustainability of languages or or dialects if they have a written form, right? If they have been Hmm. caught up in the training data, right? They are preserved in a way and can be used and reused and, and sort of drawn upon. But it also makes it much easier for people to develop their ideas and draw upon existing knowledge. So one of the things that, that is now done is to test how much can these models be used to generate code from what it knows, to generate references to existing literature that are actual references, not just real-looking fake references, mm-hmm. um, and draw upon existing ideas and you know, help us fuse and merge them into new worthwhile ideas. So I think in that respect, it it does a great deal for the sustainability of human knowledge and learning. Right? So I think my hope would be that this to some extent normalizes AI a little bit. Uh, we've talked before about the binary nature of either hype or doom. And I think now that we're seeing this very sort of viscerally in our everyday life. Obviously, we're excited. I'm still excited about this. But I think if everybody sees this, it will help to make this just a normal component in life. It will show us what is possible. But it will also make us aware by communicating with these things, hold up, these things are actually not smart, right? They can produce language in a very coherent way. They look and sound like another human but they're lacking a lot of the other qualities that make us human. And they will show us where we stand with the goal of general AI. And I think that is still a long way away. So in terms of AI development, this has been a huge step. In terms of general AI, we're still you know, making baby steps. And I think it will make it clearer for a wider audience what they can and cannot realistically expect from AI. And I think it will make it less scary and more understandable and, you know, still useful, amazing and incredible, but in a more human way, maybe. It is, uh, as I mean, Dirk was mentioning other big changes like uh, electricity or you think about, uh, you know, automobiles and, and it's starting, I think it is starting to look like AI is going to have profound effects like those kinds of changes in terms of how we live and work in all sorts of ways. But maybe it's also, it's hard to say if it's going to have bigger or smaller effects than those kinds of events or changes. But 
but the kind of change AI has is different because it it does relate to our own conception of ourselves and what it means to be human and it's going to be it's going to be messing with that and that's a bigger thing that's separate from productivity increases and you know i think it is the very notion of what it means to be human that's sort of more and more at play or in question and that's a big thing to get your head around which i think is plenty of reason to be incredibly excited and also maybe a little bit scared. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you wish to stay in the loop or participate in the Big Questions Little Time podcast, please subscribe on your usual platform or contact me, Center Manager Sarah Netta via sn.msc at cbs.dk. The music used in this podcast is Impossible Nothing by Crowender.